If you have your Bibles with you or you have your Bible on an iPhone or some other device, uh, if you would turn to Joshua 9, I'll be reading verses 1 to 15. Joshua 9 deals with a lot of the battles and so forth that's going on at that time. Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and the lowland and on the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivites and the Jebusite heard of it, that they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they also acted craftily, craftily and set out as envoys and took worn-out sacks of their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves and all the bread of their provisions was dry and had become crumbled. They went to Joshua to the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you are uh, living within our land how then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Then Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, Your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that, did, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the king, two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Shion king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. And in verse 11, So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now then make a covenant with us. This our bread was warm when we took it for our provisions and out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and has become crumbled. These wineskins which we filled with new, and behold, they were torn, and these our clothes and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made peace with them, and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Good morning, everyone. I want to thank the worship team. Uh, Tammy, the selection of songs is spot on for me. The, every one of those songs are near and dear to me. Uh, Dave, many thanks for the reading. I owe you one. <laughs> and uh, he stole my thunder about uh, D-Day, and that's, he did a great job of it. So I bring a message from Gary and Don. First of all, they, they send their appreciation. The cards uh, going up and singing to them has been great. Uh, the meals are a big help. Thank you, Melinda. And the afternoon helpers 
are a blessing in a number of ways. Uh, they also want to send their love to the entire Grace Point family. I have been honored to read to Gary from his latest preaching Bible. And on a blank page at the front of the Bible, he has written, Preach the glory, the grace, and the goodness of God. That's a reminder to him, but it says how important preaching the word is to him. Um, I have read a number of things to Gary, uh, Psalms and Philippians, but when I was reading Colossians, the word mystery was highlighted four times in his Bible. And this is an insight from Gary. So if you're reading a, a, a letter from Apostle Paul and the word mystery shows up, it means previously unrevealed truth. Previously unrevealed truth. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are sovereign. You and you are in control of every situation. You are a God of love. You freely extend your mercy and grace to us, and we thank you. We love Gary and Don, but we know you love them even more. I ask that you wrap Gary and Don in your love and heap rest, mercy, grace, peace, and joy upon them. I pray for the miracle of healing and complete recovery for Gary so that he may preach again. But if your will is to take him home, I pray that your love, mercy, and grace would encompass all of us. These are difficult times, and I pray that we would do a good job of ministering to each other. I ask that you bless our time together, and I pray that my words would be true and honest to Joshua chapter 9. Amen. So before we start talking about the book Joshua, let's talk about the man. He was born into slavery in Egypt. He was trained by and discipled by Moses. He was Moses' faithful helper during the Exodus period. Joshua was one of 12 spies sent into the promised land to scout. Ten of the spies came back and said, we can't do this. These people are too strong and powerful for us. Caleb and Joshua, Joshua came back with a different report. They said, we've got God on our side. Let's go and let's go right now. Joshua was the commander of the Israeli army. He was Moses' appointed successor. But all that aside, verse Joshua 24, 15 tells us everything we need to know about Joshua. But as far as me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So let's do a quick summary of the first eight chapters. Chapter 1 is the commission. Go take the promised land. That was the hundreds of years in the making, and the time had finally come. But this is scary business. We're talking battles, men on both sides with swords, arrows flying through the air. Chapter 1, verse 5, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Verses 6 and 9, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. 
chapter 2. This is when Joshua sent two spies to Jericho. This is a story about Rahab, a black woman, a prostitute, a pagan. Her story is one of incredible grace. Chapter 3 is when they cross the Jordan River and now they've got a foot into the promised land. Chapter 4, they set up stone memorials for the crossing. Chapter 5 is the consecration. That's preparing for battle. Chapter 6, that's when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Chapter 7 was Achan's sin and the defeated Ai. Joshua was so distraught, he tore his clothing and fell face down to the ground. Chapter 8, Ai is destroyed. Uh, I have some personal experience with the first chapter of Joshua. Uh, May of 2017, I was at the Mexican border starting to hike north on the Pacific Crest Trail. And fairly soon, I met a, a young woman that was uh, hiking toward me, and she was commissioned by her church to hand out bracelets. This is the bracelet she gave me, and I wore this for 1,700 miles up to Ashland, Oregon, and God showed incredible grace and mercy to me along the way. In the Sierras, all the rivers were at high flow. A lot of the stream crossings were downright dangerous. I never slipped, I never fell, I never lost my balance. Uh, he was also gracious and merciful to me. The week the temperatures were 107 to 112, and there was one heat stroke victim that year. So let's set the stage for Joshua 9. When they entered Canaan, or the Promised Land, it was already fully occupied. And Dave gave out the names, but I will do it again. The Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. These seven nations had rejected God. Okay, they didn't worship the God of Abraham and Moses. They had their own gods, and their gods were detestable. Their practices were detestable. To appease their gods, here's some of the things they were doing. Ritual prostitution, human sacrifice, child sacrifice. And their gods and their practices would lure, entice, and turn Israel away from the true God. That is a problem. To fully understand Joshua chapter 9, we need to back up and read a little bit from Exodus and Deuteronomy. And we're looking for two questions. First, what did God tell Israel? And second, what was the judgment on the Canaanite nations? Exodus 23, my angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Canaanite nations and I will wipe them out. Do not bow before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, 
and drive out before you the many nations, and I will give these names again, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. And in Deuteronomy 20, cities far away from Israel who seek peace with God's people should be spared the sword. But cities near to Israel whose idolatry would lead God's people astray are commanded to be destroyed. So God told Israel three things. One, do not worship their gods or follow their practices. Two, demolish them, break their sacred stones to pieces, destroy them totally, show them no mercy. And three, make no treaty with them. God's judgment on the Canaanite nations and the cities nearby Israel, extermination, death to all. The judgment on the Canaanite nations is harsh. And Joshua has some very difficult subject matter that I just don't like trying to discuss. There are battles with many deaths, people groups that practice idolatry. There's a call for genocide. So our God is a God of love and mercy and grace, no question. But God is also a God of justice. The book of Joshua is an amazing historical account. The story is fascinating, and there is much to learn. So this brings us to Joshua chapter 9. And the first question is, how did news spread back then? There were no television, no radio, no newspapers. So news reports were not readily accessible. There was no internet. They could not Google what happened at Jericho. There were no cell phones. They couldn't text or call friends or relatives. News traveled by word of mouth. And travelers would bring news from one region and travel and take it to another region. In this case, the stories were fantastic. Events that were amazing and incredible. So the, so the word spread like wildfire, but the news brought fear. Joshua chapter 2, this is about Rahab, the pagan and prostitute. She is inside the fortified walls of Jericho talking to the two spies that Joshua sent. She is speaking, chapter 2, verse 9. Great fear has fallen on us, because of you. We have heard of how the Lord your God dried up the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings whom you completely destroyed. Chapter 2, verse 11. When we heard of it, our hearts melted. Everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Rahab 
believed, she was blessed. She is in the lineage of Jesus. So chapter 9, verse 1, the kings on the west side of the Jordan River heard what happened to Jericho. Verse 3, the people of Gibeon heard what happened to Jericho and Ai. In verses 9 and 10, so the ambassadors of Gibeon are talking to Joshua and the men of Israel. And this is the ESV translation. We have come because of the name of the Lord your God. The NIV says we have come because of the fame of the Lord your God. And it goes on to say, for we heard of him and all he did in Egypt and all he did to King Sion and King Og. So every Canaanite nation had heard the news, they knew the stories, they knew what happened. Everyone was petrified. Slide number one, please, Deb. So great fear has gripped the Canaanite nations. So now that Israel has come into the promised land, the curse of Canaan, as pronounced in Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy, is coming to fruition. And the question for the Canaanite nations, what are you going to do about the threat of Israel? And more importantly, what are you going to do about the threat of Israel's God? Slide number two. There were different responses to the threat of Israel's God in Israel. So for the kings on the west side of the Jordan River, when they heard about Jericho, they prepared for war. Okay, Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. All the kings west of the Jordan River combined their armies to fight against Joshua in Israel. So their strategy was, we're going to form an alliance of these seven nations okay, one, in one big army because we know we are stronger together than we are individually. The Living Bible says they were fighting for their lives, which was a matter of Israel's conquest and extermination policy. So the seven nations on the west side of the Jordan River, to make sure we're clear here, they had fought among themselves many times, battles and skirmishes and so forth. But now that Israel has come on, they have set their differences aside to unite against a common enemy. So all seven nations are united against Israel. The kings know, the kings know, yeah, they must win the battle. They have to win the battle. Now, Gibeon was a Hivite city. The Hivites had the same death judgment on them from God, extermination. And like the kings on the west side of the Jordan River, Gibeon was in a tough spot. But the people of Gibeon knew something that the other kings didn't know. They knew that correctly they could not stand up to Israel's God. This is the God that had parted the Red Sea. This is the God that had caused the walls of Jericho to collapse. So Gibeon knew we cannot win this battle. So when the kings on the west side of the Jordan River heard about Jericho, they rose up to war because they want to win the battle. 
When Gibeon heard about Jericho and Ai, their response was different. They laid down their swords, they laid down their shields, and they made a plan for peace. So you've got the kings preparing for war, and you've got Gibeon is making a plan for peace. And for Gibeon, their plan was one of desperation because it was their only hope. The people of Gibeon used two different strategies simultaneously. And simultaneously is almost at the same time. <laughs> okay. So the strategy for Gibeon, their first one was that of deception. ESV said they acted with cunning or they were shrewd. The NIV said they resorted to a ruse. That's R-U-S-E, ruse, which is an action intended to confuse or mislead. The Living Bible said they resorted to trickery to save themselves. The fact is the people of Gibeon were neighbors of Israel. They lived next door. And instead, the ambassadors of Gibeon made it look like they had traveled a long way to get there. And they kept saying over and over again, we've come from a distant land. So this is what the ambassadors of Gibeon looked like when they arrived on the scene. Verse 4, their donkeys were loaded down with worn out sacks. They had old wine skins that had cracked and been mended. Their sandals were worn out and patched. They had worn out clothes. They had dry, crumbly bread. So they pretended to be something they were not, and they were not travelers from a far land. The second strategy that Gibeon used was that of surrender. So if we're in battle and we wave the white flag, we are telling everybody, we quit, please stop shooting. Okay, well in this instance, Gibeon was given up before the battle had even begun. Uh, the ambassadors are speaking from Gibeon, and they, in verse 6 they say, We have come from a distant country, so make a treaty with us. So they're saying, We want peace. In verse 8, now they're speaking directly to Joshua, and they say, We are your servants. So they're saying, Maybe we're willing to be slaves. Verse 9, Your servants have come from a very distant country. Verse 11, now this is supposedly the Gibeon elders talking to the Gibeon ambassadors. Go and meet them, and the them in this case is the Israelites and Joshua, and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. So these men from Gibeon, they spoke pretty vaguely. They say, we have come from a distant country or are a very distant country. They never give specifics, just a distant country. And I will ask you, what does a distant country mean? I, I don't know, I can't define that. But we do have to give them credit. As the message is laid out in Joshua, these Gibeon ambassadors were consistent. So what's most important to the kings on the west side of the Jordan River? Winning the battle. That's most important to them. What's most important to the ambassadors and the people from Gibeon is securing a peace treaty. That way they can live. And they are willing to become Israel, Israel's slaves if that's what it means. 
Okay. When we go fishing, we bait a line with the hook and we cast it out into the water. And what we want to happen is get that fish in really close, lure them in. And then when a fish takes the bait, we set the hook and reel them in. So now we're going to look at the back and forth conversation between the ambassadors of Gibeon and Joshua and uh, the Israeli leaders. And as we're going to see, the Gibeon ambassadors were well coached and well rehearsed. Verse 6, the men of Gibeon are speaking. We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Verse 7, the men of, Gib men of Israel say, perhaps... You live amongst us. How can we make a treaty with you? So they were suspicious. Verse 8, the men of Gibeon are talking now directly to Joshua. We are your servants. Then Joshua says, who are you and where did you come from? Now Joshua is suspicious. Verse 9, now the men from Gibeon need to try to turn away that suspicion. And they say, from a very distant country, your servants have come. Vague questions not answered. Now in verses 9 and 10, they're going to use some flattery. So the men of Gibeon say, your servants have come from a distant country because of the name of your Lord. For we heard a report of him and all he did in Egypt and all he did to King Sion and King Og. Now in verse 11, they're trying to make sure this is all, sounds real to Joshua and Israeli leaders. Our elders told us, take provisions for the long journey. Go meet them and say, we are your servants. Come make a treaty with us. Then in verses 12 and 13, now they pull out the smoke screen and the distraction. Look at our dry, crumbly bread, our wine skins. Our sandals are closed. The people of Gibeon were neighbors, but their ambassadors tried to look and sound as if they had come a long way to get there. So let's see what happened now and how well Gibeon's strategies worked. Verse 14, so the men of Israel took some of the provisions from the men of Gibeon. Why did they take provisions from a ragtag group like that? I don't know. Now, we have come to the most important point of this story. Joshua and the leaders of Israel did not seek counsel with God. They did not ask God, can we trust these men from Gibeon? So slide number three, Joshua did not inquire of God. So the result of all this, back and forth. So Joshua made peace with them and made a peace treaty. The leaders of Israel ratified the treaty. So the men of Israel, they made an oath. They made a binding treaty. Israel did exactly what they were told by God not to do. If Joshua had, had asked God, the outcome would have been much different. Instead, Joshua and the leaders, they got lured in, they took the bait, they got hooked, and they got reeled in. Gibeon's two strategies, surrender and deception, brilliantly planned and brilliantly executed. 
Gibeon got exactly what they wanted, a binding peace treaty so they can live and not be exterminated. So that's how things work badly for Israel. So we're going to look at a contrast now, a different situation from a different book in the Bible. This will be 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This is about King Jehoshaphat. And the situation for Judah and Jehoshaphat was this. They've got three armies are bearing down on them. Armies from the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Munites. Verse 3, alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. He resolved to inquire of the Lord, so he was determined. Verse 4, the people of Judah came together to seek help from God. And so you got the king and the people are not just together, but they're of one accord at this point. Verse 5, Jehoshaphat stands up in the assembly and he begins praying. Jehoshaphat said and did some very critical things, especially in verses 12 through 18. So in verse 12, King Jehoshaphat is still praying, and he has now come to the point of his prayer. And he says, we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. So they say they have no power, they don't know what to do, but they're going to keep their eyes on God. Verses 14 through 17, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon a man from Judah. He stands up, and this is what he says, Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, because the battle is not yours, but God's. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. And then verse 18, Jehoshaphat bows face down to the ground. The people of Judah and Jerusalem, they bow face down to the ground. That position is an act of total submission. So they were being submissive to God and they were worshiping God. The next day, Judah and Jehoshaphat were blessed by God and they easily won the battle. So that's what happens when things go well and go right for Israel. So we're going to go back to uh, Joshua 9 and slide number 4, God of justice. So the judgment on Gibeon was extermination. Not one person was to live. So that was the ju judgment or justice on Gibeon for their idolatry. But it did not come to pass. Because as we saw, through their cunning, their deception, and their surrender, the people of Gibeon received the guarantee of life. But the peace treaty came at a cost, and that was slavery. Again, this was God's justice for their idolatry. <coughs> Excuse me. And so the people of Gibeon became slaves of Israel, especially working on doing tasks for the temple. So they were cutting wood and hauling water. And being slaves put them in close proximity to God's people and their worship. So that was a blessing for the people of Gibeon. 
God held Israel accountable for the treaty they made with Gibeon for years to come. This was God's justice for Israel making a treaty that they were told not to do. <coughs> now, to be honest, I read somewhere that someone was saying that chapter 9, the theme was mercy. I kept trying to link it to mercy. When I gave an earlier version of this to someone to read, they said, I'm not seeing much mercy here. The people of Gibeon get to live, but they've lost their freedom. They've become slaves. And, um, it, and he says, that's not living, that's only existing. So to make sure we're clear here, there is no love your neighbor as yourself in Joshua 9. It's not there. The four main points of this is uh, great fear has gripped the Canaanite nations. There were different responses to the threats of Israel's God in Israel. Joshua did not inquire of God, God of justice. So we're briefly going to look at some personal application, and I've got two questions for us. First, have you ever not consulted God and moved forward on your own? Have you ever been deceived or tricked? Okay, the fact is, we all want to be independent and show what we can do. But God wants us to open every compartment of our lives to him. Even the compartments we want to lock the door and throw away the key. Okay? And even when we've seen God's power proven in the past, we often press on in our own strength, taking matters into our own hand instead of seeking the Lord. So the main lesson to us from Joshua chapter 9 is if we've got a problem or if we have a decision to make, we need to ask the Lord. But to be clear, inquiring of God is asking him what he wants us to do. It's not saying, God, I've got this plan. Would you please bless it? There's a difference. So we do need to lean into God's understanding and strength and wisdom. And like Jehoshaphat, ask God, what do I do in this situation? And we need to stop picking back up what we have surrendered in faith. Self-reliance can and often lead to bad decisions. So slide number five. This is some verses from Proverbs and Matthew. Trust in the Lord, acknowledge him, believe that his promises are trustworthy, and that he'll make your path straight, and that he'll have the final victory. That's from Proverbs 3. And then Matthew 6:33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So even in our failures... God is a God of redemption. God fulfilled all of his promises to Israel, and he will do the same with us. From Genesis to Revelation, God is writing the most beautiful, redemptive story, and his name is Jesus. Let me pray. Well, Father God, teach us your ways and how to wrap justice and mercy together. Make us a body of believers that are quick to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness to others. Teach us, Lord, what is good and what you require of us so that we can learn to act justly, to love mercy, 
to walk humbly. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me give you a benediction. A benediction is a blessing. And this is from 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And to him be glory both now and forever. Amen.